From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Past Colorado Secretary of State races have been more of a sleeper. But this time around, it's one of the hottest elections to watch. Today and tomorrow on Colorado Matters, we talk to the candidates. First up, Republican Pam Anderson. It should be and remain a nonpartisan professional job that we should keep this office above the political fray. Something she says her opponent has not done. Anderson points to her experience as the clerk in politically diverse Jefferson County, along with her time leading the Clerks Association. We built a system that was citizen-driven, transparent, paper-based, auditable, and publicly verifiable. Plus, her take on that voter registration postcard snafu and how she'd worked with local officials on the front lines of democracy. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The Secretary of State race in Colorado is, well, weighty this year. While neither candidate disputes the results of the 2020 election, the effects of misinformation are inescapable. Tomorrow, we'll hear from Democratic incumbent Jenna Griswold, who wants a second four-year term. Today, we talk to her Republican opponent, Pam Anderson. She spoke with my co-host, Ryan Warner, earlier this week. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you, Ryan. So nice to meet you. You served for eight years as the clerk and recorder in politically diverse Jefferson County. Uh, You also led the Colorado County Clerks Association, which is also politically diverse. I do want to start with some quick questions just to help voters understand where you come from as a Republican. Uh, The GOP itself is divided over the 2020 election. For the record, how do you view the administration of the 2020 election and its results? Yeah, I have a lot of confidence in the results of the 2020 election. I've been um, stalwart in that position from the minute I not only announced, but as executive director for the association in 2020 and standing shoulder to shoulder with local election officials all across the state. Was President Trump wrong to try to overturn the results? Yes. In general, you view then Colorado's election system as safe and accurate. I do. I have a lot of investment in that as a county clerk, working with my bipartisan uh, colleagues all across the state. We were responsible for building and having a hand in writing so much of the reform of the last 15 years. We have a lot of investment in it. Doesn't mean we always have room for improvement, but we built a system that was citizen-driven, transparent, paper-based, auditable, and publicly verifiable. And by mail for a lot of Coloradans. Is that something you support specifically, the notion of voting by mail? It is. When I was Jefferson County Clerk and Recorder, before I led as the president of the Colorado County Clerks Association in 2013, 
my county was voting over 82% permanent mail, meaning requesting a mail ballot. So it's been popular for decades. We've evolved our model. We've followed our voters with data-driven. And we've maintained choice for your constitutional rights. We're going to efficiently mail you a ballot to eligible voters. But you also have the choice to have that in-person experience, if you prefer it, for one-stop shop for voting. At a vote center, I think At those are called. At a vote center. There was uh, a turn of phrase I wanted to explore with you. You said, um, we f- what did you say? We follow voters data-driven? What did you mean by that? Yeah, so voters-centric, data-driven. I'm a very evidence-based person. I'm a small business owner. I've taken that experience and my experience with a master's of public administration. I had some of the same questions when I became a county clerk way back in 2007 that other people have on whether or not the processes were accurate. Um, is the training good? And so I developed operational audits, like a signature verification audit that validates that our voter verification works well. Um, Voter list maintenance, having as accurate voter list as we can, auditing that process, making sure our judges aren't getting tired. These are the things that we've done here in Colorado that gives us the ability to have confidence in the processes. And we have to remain vigilant in order to make sure that we're always progressing and improving. What would you change if elected? Yeah, you know, I think we always have opportunities for providing even more access like we had with expanding uh, ballot transmission to disability voters. We can always provide, with appropriate resources, more opportunities for drop boxes. We can also look at taking some of the best practices that we've developed at the local level, as I did as a Jefferson County Clerk and Recorder, for trusting but verifying. So, for example, that signature verification audit is a best practice, but we could codify it and standardize it and make it more consistently applied. Across the state. Across the state. Okay, making sure that the signature on file is the signature that is on the ballot, that those match. Yeah, this is... It's funny. You know how often my signature has changed over the years, Pam Anderson? (laughs) This has always been a bit of a black box for me, but uh, maybe say a few more words. Signature verification is where bipartisan judges evaluate your ballot signature that you sign in your affidavit against every example that we have of your signature as your voter record. Oh, so you you look at its progression, perhaps. We do look at the progression. And bipartisan teams, before they can say the signature doesn't match, they have to do a pretty significant evaluation. And it's training we developed from the Colorado Bureau of Investigations on signature validation. But what we want to do is making sure that that process is working like we think it should. So I developed an operational quality assurance to say, are our judges' training still doing well? Is there any nefarious actors that are either blindly rejecting or blindly accepting ballots? And it's that sort of verification of the process that helps us give confidence And that you'd like to bring potentially statewide. Uh, And just to be clear, if a judge flags or judges flag that a signature doesn't match, that's not the end of the story. You then go to the voter to help cure it, correct? Yeah, Yeah. we have a a wonderful and very important tool of curing if you you forgot to sign your ballot or you didn't present uh, ID if it was required. Uh, You have an opportunity until eight days after Election Day. And at the local level, we we, uh, implemented an 
and we're entrepreneurial with software like Text to Cure that now the Secretary of State has taken statewide. But these are things that we piloted locally to test it, make sure it works well, and provide a lot of choice for voters. The job of Secretary of State is so much more than elections. You know, I was just going through some of the job duties, business registration, tracking of lobbyists, Oversight of bingo and raffles. Those bingos and raffles. Pam Anderson, (laughs) why do you want this job? Yeah, so, you know, I have a master's in public administration. I have a small business. I think the leadership and management side is also something that drew me not just to the secretary's race, but as a municipal clerk, as the county clerk for Jeffco. I mean, we did high-volume customer service like driver's driver's licenses and motor vehicle registration and license plates. Is this fundamentally a customer service job? It's really a customer service job. This is a job for for a professional, for management, for leadership. And, And that's the approach I've always taken. It is elected, but I have done work here and across the country in professionalizing the work. What do you think differentiates you from the incumbent, aside from your party? Yeah, I think aside from my party, my approach and philosophy that it should be and remain a nonpartisan professional job, that we should keep this office above the political fray. You don't think she's done that? I don't. I, th- I saw up close as executive director, um, not only at the Secretary of State's office, actually in some of our local offices as well, individuals running and seeking more of the political side of an elected office and using the platform to elevate their political profile, raise a whole lot of money, but ultimately being divisive and politically partisan in places that should remain above the fray. Republicans in the state legislature have long tried unsuccessfully to raise the bar for the ID needed to register and to vote. If you're elected, would you support those efforts? Yeah. So as a legislative co-chair and a county clerk, I believe that the best approach is to take the partisan from the left and right out of the equation and bring what really impacts voters. So, for example, over 99% of people present a photo ID when presented for voting or or returning their mail ballot if they need to. Okay, so they've provided that either in person or by mail. Right. What this has become is a polarizing issue for the left or the right to, frankly, fundraise. And what we need to do is take it off the table for confidence. 85% of voters, they think it makes sense to present a photo ID. I think we can do that and still provide safety for voters in order to uh, make sure that no bureaucrat is getting in the way of their constitutional right. So think about someone who doesn't have a photo ID. Maybe they've lost it. Maybe they can't afford to replace it. Maybe they don't have the time. Mm Help me understand this. Put a finer point on it for me. What would that person do? Yeah. So we have a provisional process that that person can still vote. We also, a lot of times, county clerks, what do they do? Driver's license. And we provide free IDs in the state of Colorado as well. And so I think we can resolve that issue for the very, very small number of people that that would impact. And would you then still accept, say, a utility payment? As proof of who someone is. So for registration, we already, if you have a driver's license or ID, you have to present it. For voting, you can still accept a utility bill. Um, what I'm saying is we could do that um, for provisional voting, and let's resolve the identity and, and voter verification issue that way. So I think the new idea here 
that you'd bring to the table is that it be a provisional ballot? Is that initially? Initially. Yeah, initially. As a as a safeguard as an entry point. Yes, because I think we need to balance confidence for voters who this for this this makes sense, but also taking these polarizing issues off the table when we've got the data and the technical process to be able to do this well. One theme you have touched on now is taking the politics out of being Secretary of State and out of elections, frankly, or the administration of them. Um, While you have been clear that there was no widespread fraud and that the 2020 election is legitimate, your opponent has criticized you for not doing more to stand up to Republican candidates who have spread misinformation. Uh, Two prominent ones that come to mind are the GOP candidate for Lieutenant Governor Danny Moore and the 7th Congressional District candidate Eric Odland. Does it make you uncomfortable that the big lie is being parroted by prominent candidates in your own party? Well, it, it makes me uncomfortable that my opponent is mischaracterizing what I've done. The center point for my campaign is standing up against the lie, standing up against the conspiracy, which I have done not only to the candidates that I've run with on the same ticket. You have and those going into the Absolutely. Gone into the room and pushed back on this false information, provided accurate information like the lost but not stolen report that demonstrates under the rule of law the accuracy of the outcome of the election. I will continue to stand up and push back regardless of the stores, Republican, Democrat, or unaffiliated for accurate evidence-based elections. Talk to a swing voter, someone who'd consider casting a ballot for you, but who thinks uh, letting any Republican near elections right now, is bringing a fox into the hen house. Uh, Differently put, what sort of firewall would there be between you as a Republican secretary of state and the more conspiratorial wing of your party? Yeah, well, I think my record demonstrates representing a very diverse uh, jurisdiction and standing in the fray with not only hundreds, but thousands of Republican, Democrat, and unaffiliated local election officials where we do our elections that don't put political affiliation or politics before voters. That's been our record and tradition here in Colorado and is the center point for why I'm running. These offices, regardless of your political beliefs, and we have had lots of secretaries with firmly held political beliefs, but they maintain these offices above that fray as an objective, fair referee for the process. My record has done that, and I will continue to do things like establishing professional ethics and standards so that we don't have a secretary using millions of dollars for commercials that should have been used for things like safe and secure elections. So I think maintaining and insulating not only our voters, but the Secretary of State agency staff from the politics, that's been my record and background. And for thousands of other local election officials, the politicians that have taken these these offices are more the exception. But I'm running just to restore that kind of professionalism. You mentioned uh, your own jurisdiction, Jefferson County. I, I actually haven't looked at the registration lately. I should do that. But it's, it's always been known as a place that has roughly a third, a third, a third uh, Democrat. Republican unaffiliated. We know unaffiliated are growing statewide. Uh, but the point is to serve in Jefferson County is to serve in a politically diverse place. Uh, that's what you're getting at there. 
Under the leadership of your opponent, the Secretary of State's office mistakenly mailed voter registration notices to 30,000 some Coloradans who are not U.S. citizens. The office is the one who made the error known. These notices did make it clear that citizens are not eligible. And the state emphasizes that if anyone who isn't a U.S. citizen tries to register to vote, Colorado's online system will kick them out. Uh, They will do extra monitoring as well as a precaution. So having laid that out, does that close the issue for you? It doesn't. I have a few concerns, and I'll tell you what they are. Um, I was the executive director in 2020 when this same mistake happened. Of the Colorado County Clerks Association. Yeah, the Colorado County Clerks Association, when this same mistake happened at the Secretary of State's office under my opponent's leadership. And it was fairly limited, and human error happens in elections administration. And so uh, that was understandable. But this is a repeated error, and this one is, is far more egregious and more impactful to people that live here in Colorado And I have concerns that... What is the impact? The impact is um, if someone that is not eligible but is given the impression that they could be eligible, particularly non-citizens here present, maybe on the path to citizenship, even attempt to register to vote, that can impact their naturalization process. And what I'm concerned with is I believe that the, the failure in leadership is the rampant turnover that is provided not only in this instance, but for example, election night reporting, multiple repeated mistakes. Human error exists, but what did you put in place to ensure this wouldn't happen again? And that is the failure. My other concern is around accountability. So yes, you know, reporting to to CPR that, that this instance has occurred on a Friday afternoon, that's awesome. But here's the thing. As an election official, when my team has made an error, the buck stops with me. And I've stood shoulder to shoulder with my fellow election officials, with my team, and taken responsibility for that error. And these postcards, I I would ask the question, these postcards that went out from Jenna, did it have her name on it? When the mistake happened, did she also put her name on it? What I know is the county clerks, until today, it's been almost a week, heard nothing from the Secretary of State's office about this issue. And they have been attacked at the local level for many issues that weren't their responsibility. I will stand shoulder to shoulder with them, take responsibility, and share that responsibility as an election official. I think this points to a lack and failure of leadership. Do do you think it was intentional on the Secretary's part? Uh, Absolutely not. I think that, that what is intentional is that when you identify an issue, like the mistake that happened in 2020, what did you put in place to ensure that it didn't happen again? And how did that fail? Give us an example of an error you've taken responsibility for. And I have to say, um, it's, it's refreshing to hear people acknowledge human mistakes, human errors, because I think that the conversation around elections these days is so fraught that every transgression is immediately seen as nefarious. This is a really tough job. It is really hard, and it's technical and complicated, and errors happen. I can give you 
at least two examples of as an election official. You don't have to flog yourself. (laughs) Just give me one. Well, you know, uh, my election staff, um, you know, I wasn't the one physically doing it, but my election staff erroneously sent ballots to special district electors without the issue that they were eligible to vote on. And when that happened... I went to the special district board. I wrote the press release. I took responsibility as the leader of the organization and said, this was my error, and this is what we're going to do about it so that it never happens again. And I think that that is where the buck stops, what real leadership is. This office isn't just a PR firm and taking credit for things that you say you've done that maybe other people helped. It's also a place real leadership is standing up when it's hard, when it's not politically convenient. And that's been my record and why I believe I've been respected as a professional working in a nonpartisan space and being absolutely straightforward for our voters for the good and places where we can get better. There's a lot of money out there to support election denying Republican candidates. There's a lot of money for Democrats who say they are defending elections. But based on the money in your race, where you've been widely outspent by your opponent, it doesn't seem there's a lot of national money for candidates who occupy the space you do. (laughs) What what do you make of that? You know, I I think that's a really interesting point. I I think um, this may seem politically naive to some politicos out there, but one of the reasons I'm running is that I'm not sure you should be able to raise $4 million as a secretary of state candidate or being outspent by my primary opponent, Tina Peters, and she was able to raise $500,000 by going on Steve Bannon in a week. And I think to be able to do that, you by its very nature have to use sound bites, be politically divisive, diving into places that have no nexus for the professional operation and mission of the work. And so I knew I was going to be outspent, and yet Colorado voters rejected that rhetoric and false information in the primary. And I believe— In defeating Tina Peters, who had a national name and national money behind her. Yeah, and and I've I've never been dismayed by massive campaign checks by my opponent because I've gone all over this state into these rooms— into rooms where there are people of good conscience that have been influenced by these lies and conspiracies and stood there, talked about my campaign for 10 minutes and answered questions for an hour and 45 minutes with the mission of saying the truth and going to where the voters are. And I've seen, palpably seen the impact that can have. That does so much more than millions of dollars in commercials and sound bites by going to where Coloradans are and answering the questions. Though presumably it's a lot more footwork. I mean, you know. And mileage. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Your mother-in-law, Norma Anderson, served in the Colorado State Legislature for almost 20 years, both in the House and the Senate. She was a Republican for that entire time. But I think it was about a year ago, she became a registered unaffiliated because she didn't like the direction the GOP was taking. I wonder how often the two of you, if at all, have talked about her choice and why she made it, and whether you have considered your own republicanism, given the rift in the party over elections, you know, which have been so central to your career. I love that you've brought up 
my mother-in-law, Senator Anderson, she was the first woman to serve as a majority leader in both the House and the Senate. And um, I've been twice blessed with strong women as moms. So I'm incredibly grateful for my relationship. Um, she actually unaffiliated longer than a year ago. It's been quite some time um, for exactly the reasons you said. She does sort of reaffiliate if she wants to participate in caucus. So she's been a Republican since then. Oh, okay. And, so, you no, know, it goes no. back and forth. Mm -hmm. But you're right. She is like so many other voters in Colorado uh, that have chosen none of the above, are unaffiliated, the largest block of voters for Colorado, independents, and have left the parties, both the left and the right, um, because I think of this hyper-partisan and polarizing place that we are in, this divisive place that I don't believe most people live and reside. So what's your own relationship to your party affiliation? So I've been a lifelong Republican for a couple of reasons. One, I'm kind of an institutionalist. I believe, you know, and in our infrastructure is based on two-party system with some minor party activity. Um, I'm a Republican and identify as a Republican primarily around economic issues um, and taxation. Um, but it's never been a driving force, my politics, in my profession as a municipal clerk, a county clerk, or as a candidate for office for secretary of state. And when you become a candidate, you know, the infrastructure for, for the two parties in order to get out the vote and talk to voters is there. Have I considered unaffiliating? Um, periodically. Um, I don't agree with my entire platform, and parties are sort of like a big family, right? A really big family where you're arguing with the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving dinner. That's what parties are like, especially on the activist front. Um, for me, uh, I have had a, a life and a profession. My life's work has been around the democracy space. I have no interest in being a U.S. senator or running for governor. I'm running for Secretary of State because it is a destination and extension of my life's work at a time that is so important to restore confidence and trust through the very thing we all can agree with as Americans, not for one party or the other. I want to give the last word to a county clerk. So we spoke with Chuck Broerman. He's the El Paso County Clerk recently honored with his own Defender of Democracy Award by the state's County Clerks Association. We asked him if he would pose a question to the Secretary of State candidates. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this will be for you and for your opponent. Uh, I will point out that while Rohrman is a Republican, uh, he is not endorsing in this race. What would you implement to assist county clerks in their role. They have a very difficult one. They wear many hats between recording deeds of trust, performing marriage ceremonies, motor vehicle transactions, and doing the agenda for the county commissioners. What things will you implement to better support clerk and recorders? And would you be willing to assist clerk and recorders in getting a fair amount of reimbursement for the cost of elections. Elections are very expensive, but we only get a measly 80 cents per voter, and it costs us about five or six times that to run an election per voter. 
Um, well, thanks for that question, Clerk Barman. And as the executive director, full, full disclosure, I did advocate for all of 64 of the county clerks in, across Colorado up until about January 2021. And much of that advocacy didn't break down on party lines, Republican or Democratic, but on resource lines, on whether or not funded elections and supported elections from the federal and state were sufficiently supported. Um, so is that like an urban-rural? It's more urban-rural, uh-huh. but but all elections are underfunded. And, you know, at the county level, revenues are driven mostly by property values, right? Property taxes. And so, you know, Montezuma County isn't doing the same as Jefferson County, my well, county. I think of Werfano, for right? instance. And there is a very big uneven playing field in funding and resources for elections. And so one of my first actions will be to support Senate Bill 1 to raise the reimbursement. It hasn't been increased in 10 years. And that doesn't mean that we haven't seen mandates from the legislature or from the, the current Secretary of State that the counties have had to backfill while politicians take credit for it. And so I think that we need to, if we believe that access and security and integrity are important, we should put our money where our mouth is, not divert those resources for things like commercials, but also to advocate and not break the promise of supporting the full funding of elections. Now, you have made several references to the commercials. Mm, It's Um, a thing for me. (laughs) So um, Jenna Griswold, the current Secretary of State, stood with a former Secretary of State who's a Republican and uh, basically told the state of Colorado, you can have faith in this system. That was a bipartisan message. It seems to follow the spirit of much of what you told us today. Why have you railed against this commercial? So it's not the message. It's who you choose as messengers for taxpayer resources. And like I said about the errors, the human errors at the Secretary of State's office, the concern is when you start seeing patterns. And during COVID, there was federal funding for safe elections. There was um, about $6 million dollars. And my opponent spent $2.8 million of that for commercials when rejecting requests from counties to send a direct mail postcard that was fordable so people would be sure if they moved, they could update their address so they wouldn't have to come in person. I have a problem with that. I think there are projects that were pushed down the road for things like commercials. And you don't have to take my word for it. I was featured on the cover of Time magazine. You were indeed. I was. Let me bring that up so that you don't have to feel like you're patting yourself on the back. You told Time, security equals suppression for the left, access equals fraud on the right. I don't believe either of those things. You told Time, uh, echoing what you've told us here today. But go ahead. Well, and I, I shared the cover with Democratic Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, who also received federal funding for elections during that crisis. What state is that? Michigan. Michigan. And they were right in the thick of things, right? Right in the thick of things. And if you compare how much went directly to the locals in Michigan versus Colorado, it's a real problem how much was diverted. The same thing happened with $1.1 million this summer. I don't disagree with the message. The message is important. I do have a problem from a professional ethical perspective of using taxpayer resources and, and promoting with their image announced candidates for public office. And Wayne Williams, as Secretary of State, did a fine job, and he's supporting my race, but he is an announced candidate for mayor of Colorado Springs. And I think that 
that that is a misuse, an ethical problem, and a diversion for some things that have a higher and better use. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Pam Anderson is the Republican candidate for Colorado Secretary of State. The former Jefferson County clerk spoke with my co-host, Ryan Warner. Tomorrow, Ryan's interview with Democrat Jenna Griswold, who's running for a second term. When we come back, how the threat of school violence is still having an impact on the mental and emotional well-being of students and teachers, even when it's not real. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Latino voters in Colorado have tended to vote for Democrats by wide margins. But this year, Republicans think, or hope, they can peel away some of those votes. My main issues are going to be the economy. The infrastructure sucks. How we take care of the earth. Veterans benefits. I'm very concerned about my second amendment right. The CPR Politics podcast, Purplish, looks at the voters who can make the difference this season. Everywhere you listen to podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. A handful of Colorado schools have recently had to deal with security threats that turn out to be false. It's fairly new. I I have to say it's really new to me. Mo Kennedy leads the National Association of School Resources Officers. He's a former policeman and school resource officer himself. When I was an SRO, we were dealing more with bomb threats, which are a totally different kind of threat than what we're talking about here. What we're talking about are calls that claim to report an active shooting inside a school, except there is no shooter. The whole thing turns out to be fake. We haven't seen this a lot in the past where people will falsely call in an attack on a school. I'm not sure what's going on with it, but it is a quite a bizarre surge in these kinds of incidents. Kennedy says this phenomenon has been happening nationwide for several weeks. It appears these threats have sometimes come from the same person or a group making multiple calls. The magazine Wired examined nearly 100 false reports at schools across the country in September. They found that dozens of them came from the same source overseas. They were not able to trace dozens of other calls. Denver's East High School got one of these hoax threats last month. On a Monday afternoon, someone called the police to falsely report a shooting. Again, it turned out to be false, but it was still a traumatic experience for some people at the school that day. One teacher wrote an essay about it for the news site Chalkbeat. Matthew Fulford's essay is called Hoax Threats Are Traumatizing My Students. We asked him to read it because it raises so many questions about how to handle hoax calls and the impact they have on people's lives. Here's Fulford's essay. I had naively assumed that my chosen profession would not involve guns being pointed at me. I grew up in England. I didn't even see a gun in real life until I taught at an American high school. Now, teachers like me are being asked to consider it routine if armed police come into our schools to respond to a hoax threat. The rationale? We're better safe than sorry. Unfortunately, the responses to these pranks cause pain of their own that educators are struggling to handle. On the afternoon of September 19th, my six-period class had just formed groups to analyze a reading on the history of American immigration. They were mid-discussion when a pre-recorded announcement called for us to take shelter. Locks, lights, out of sight. 
Initially, we were pretty relaxed. The previous Thursday, we watched our annual training video on what to do in this situation. The timing was perfect for a drill. But the next five minutes would transform my cheerful teens into a crowd of shaking and sobbing children. I realized that this was no drill when I heard sirens and crawled over to the window. In front of the school was a full-blown SWAT response. Dozens of police cars had pulled up. Officers ran towards the building with guns drawn. I sought to quiet my concerns and reassure my students that Denver police must also be having a drill. But a student told me later that my quivering lip gave me away. That's why I can't play poker, I smiled and told him. I very obvious tells when I lie. My classroom is next door to the library, and we heard officers yell at someone to get down on the ground. We heard constant shouting to open the door of the library. We heard door handles shaking. We thought that the threat was just a few feet away. For a while, we sat like that, waiting and listening. I told the students to hold hands with one another and look at me. Then a second door at the back of the room flew open and we saw officers pointing handguns at us. We were shocked because none of us had ever seen that door open before. Denver East High School is almost a century old and the building is filled with these kinds of doors that connect to offices and closets. But their original function has been lost to history so they generally stay locked with desks in front of them. The officers yelled at us to leave with our hands above our heads. I hugged a couple of students as they left. We ended up on the football field where we spent the next two hours. Without further information, we still assumed there was a real threat. Officers surrounded the field and news helicopters photographed the mayhem from above. Some students found friends and distracted themselves by joking around. Others sat on the hot turf and simply cried. As someone who tends to walk when stressed, I focused on moving through the crowd of 2,500 traumatized teenagers. Other teachers did the same. Every few minutes, we found a child crying alone or having a panic attack. Teachers returned every few minutes to check on the students, and after a while, it became clear that several students were suffering from dehydration and heat exhaustion on that 90-degree day. At some point, while we waited outside, I noticed a news report on my phone saying the whole thing was a hoax, not a real threat. Still, no one communicated that to teachers, and we understood that so many traumatized children in one place created a crisis of its own. Our school regularly receives untraceable hoax threats that require police investigation. They are not usually as extreme as this swatting hoax, though they are infuriatingly routine and extremely disruptive to student learning. To be clear, a swift police response is a good thing. With a shooter in the building, the physical safety of students should be the main concern, and I was impressed by their speed and efficiency. However, once it becomes clear that an incident is a hoax, the situation should pivot just as quickly to providing emotional support to students to help them feel safe and protect them from further trauma. Having grown up in England, where most officers don't carry firearms, I'm not the first person to be alarmed at how much of a blunt instrument American police are. I don't even want a gun, a London officer told my daughter when we were visiting the UK last summer. In order to be successful, people need to feel calm and reassured in my presence. We used to have some semblance of this community policing in our school. The school resource officers at East appeared from my vantage point to work well with students. The Denver School Board's 2020 vote to remove SROs from schools was implemented with the best of intentions. After all, students of color had been referred to law enforcement at disproportionately high rates across the district. An effect of this decision, however, is that most of our students now see the police only in crisis situations. 
This is unfortunate as it also increases the anxiety around police presence that factored into the decision to remove SROs from schools. As long as people make swatting hoaxes against our school, we need to continue to put the physical safety of our students first, but also acknowledge the psychological trauma that police responses can cause. Continuing to shout at students and point guns at them after acknowledging something is a hoax causes unnecessary harm. Meanwhile, those of us who work in schools need more resources and training in how to appropriately support students. Two days after the incident, my sixth period class returned to their groups to analyze the same readings they had begun on Monday. I quietly played some jazz in the background and worked hard to make the room feel safe. We all felt much more comfortable after an hour back together. We were just settling into presentations when lights flashed and the fire alarm went off. Don't worry, I shouted over the siren. Someone probably just burned something in a microwave. A sense of normality is hard to create in a large school such as ours. Ensuring physical safety is essential. Emotional security is also absolutely necessary before learning can happen. Matthew Fulford teaches social studies in Denver. He has been teaching since 2006. He shared an essay he wrote for Chalkbeat called Hoax Threats Are Traumatizing My Students. Denver police are still investigating the incident from September at the school. They say it appears the call was, quote, part of a wider series of hoax calls across the country. The police and Denver schools say they notified staff as soon as they could be sure it wasn't a real threat, which takes a while in such a large school. An expert in school safety and threat drills we contacted provided some context on best practices in situations like this. Jacqueline Shokrat teaches at SUNY Oswego. She says having trained counselors on hand to support students should be a must since teachers do not necessarily have the skills or training for such a high-stress situation. Debriefing about an incident can also help mitigate trauma and anxiety. We asked Mo Kennedy from the School Resources Officers Group about what he has learned this fall about how to respond to hoax calls at schools. We in law enforcement cannot allow ourselves to hesitate when this kind of call comes in and begin to wonder, is this one real or not? We have to respond in the way that we've been trained, because if not, it'll be the one where we hesitate. It'll be the one where we wonder. The sooner we can get some kind of viable report from you know that school building that this is in fact a hoax call, then the less of a critical response has to occur. And so from a best practice standpoint, we've all got to get better at being able to identify whether something is real or not. And it, it, quite frankly, with this kind of call, it takes someone being on the scene to help identify that. Kids have got to be able to get an education. And if they don't feel safe at school, if teachers don't feel safe at school, no one's getting properly educated. And if education's not happening, the trickle-down effect of that will last for generations. He says at the end of the day, schools still are one of the safest places for kids to be. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. ¿Quiénes somos nosotros? Who are we? I mean, now I feel like a Mexican-American man versus just feeling like a part-time Mexican and a part-time white wannabe guy. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast, Quien Are We?, is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. 
Look for Kian Arwi everywhere you listen. This month marks the 40th anniversary of the opening of the Betty Ford Center. It's a renowned residential treatment program for people struggling with substance abuse. Ford co-founded the center and she opened up about her own struggles with drug and alcohol in the late 1970s. CPR's Vic Vela reports for NPR's Here and Now on the legacy of the First Lady of Recovery and how a Betty Ford program in Aurora helps children understand addiction. Carrie Steinseifer got it. Carrie Steinseifer up in lane three. In 1984, Carrie Bates, or Steinseifer back in those days, took home three gold medals in swimming in the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. But if the scoreboard is correct, then Carrie Steinseifer and Nancy Hogshead are both going to get gold medals. But over the years, the thrill of that amazing achievement gave way to an agonizing reality. Bates was an alcoholic. My decline into morning drinking, all-day drinking, and loss of almost, of, you know, really everything but my own life um, happened very quickly. After years of struggles, Bates checked into the Betty Ford Center on February 1st, 2012. She's been sober ever since. You know, Betty Ford saved my life. There's, there's no other way to, um, to describe that. I felt so proud to be a part of the First Lady's legacy. And I knew that I wanted to follow in the footsteps of this great woman that, that led the way for so many of us. Good afternoon. I'm Betty Ford, and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. Betty Ford struggled with alcohol and prescription pain meds even before her husband, Gerald Ford, became president in 1974. After the Fords left the White House four years later, things got even worse. It was very sad because, you know, she was falling. Um, and you have to remember, my mother was a dancer. She was a very graceful woman. Susan Ford Bales is Betty Ford's daughter. So to see her falling and doing things like that, falling asleep at the dinner table before dinner was ever served, it was always, well, I need to finish my drink before we have dinner. On April 1, 1978, Susan led a Ford family intervention, pleading for her mom to get some help. That same month, Betty Ford checked into the Naval Regional Medical Center in Long Beach, California for treatment. She would reflect on that years later. I was not only glad that my disease was treatable, but I was tremendously grateful that God was going to give me another chance. And soon, Betty Ford's name would become synonymous with recovery. In October 1982, the Betty Ford Clinic, now called the Betty Ford Center, opened in Rancho Mirage, California. Ford was four years sober. It's hard for me to express how I feel today. The emotion is welled up in me so strong. Betty Ford would stay sober for the next 30 years, up until her death in 2011. These days, the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation has many rehab centers across the country, including a program in Aurora, Colorado, that helps children whose parents struggle with addiction, something that was very important to the former First Lady. Lindsay Chadwick manages the Hazelden Betty Ford Children's Program. One of the first things that I love seeing kids uh, learn when they come to our group is knowing that they're not alone. That there are other kids and families who have gone through the same thing. There's nothing wrong with their families. Their parents aren't bad people. Their parents are good people who've had a problem. 
The children's program was instrumental in creating the Sesame Street character named Carly, whose mom is in recovery from addiction. When Elmo talks about a problem that Elmo's having, it helps Elmo feel better. Well, well, me too. And so I go to a special kids-only meeting. Our parents all have the same problem. Betty Ford was a trailblazer in many areas besides recovery advocacy. She was a lifelong champion of women's equal rights and was way ahead of the Republican Party in her support of gay rights and her work in AIDS activism. She was also a breast cancer survivor. Susan Ford Bales, who still sits on the board of the Betty Ford Center, says her mom made great strides in combating the stigma of breast cancer. She hopes to see the day when the stigma of addiction is erased. So many people, you know, don't realize that the average substance use person is the painter, the teacher, the veterinarian, you know, it's doctors, it's lawyers, it's it's everybody in our society. People just still have a very negative attitude about it, and it really makes me sad. Still, Betty Ford's story helped many alcoholics and addicts better understand their disease, especially women, says Carrie Bates. What she did for women, not just in addiction, but breast cancer and, I mean, all different sorts of things is truly, I think, her greatest legacy. I mean, it's great. She was the first lady, and it's so impressive, you know, to be in the position that her and the president were in. But I just really appreciate her realness an authenticity that helped earn Betty Ford the nickname, the First Lady of Recovery. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. You may hear Vic share his own personal story of recovery and the stories of so many others on CPR's podcast, Back From Broken. Follow it wherever you get your podcast and online at CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today with thanks to the entire team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.